subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday, the 4th of October, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people protested outside the Dáil yesterday, depending on which estimates you believe. What is certain is uh, that public pressure was put on politicians to take action on the housing and homelessness crisis by the huge crowd that gathered for the Raise the Roof campaign on a Wednesday lunchtime outside of the Parliament. Inside, politicians debated a people-before-profit motion, declaring the housing crisis a national emergency, giving people a constitutional right to housing, doubling the capital budget to deliver more social and affordable houses, to bring vacant homes back into use and to stop tenants from being evicted and forced into homelessness. All of uh, the opposition parties, bar Fianna Fáil, supported the motion. Spokespersons for Fianna Fáil have been quoted ad nauseum in recent weeks, saying motions don't build houses. But now, it seems, Fianna Fáil will vote in favour of this particular motion, probably because of the crowds and the public pressure put on them. Declan Brannock is uh, Fianna Fáil TD in Louth. What way are you going to vote today? Uh, absolutely in support of the motion. Um, Will that I, build houses? Uh, I, li- I liked your introduction. Uh, Will that build houses? Uh, look, at talk won't build houses. There's no question about so it. So why are you voting in favour of this motion? Uh, I think it highlights that the Fianna Fáil commitment to ensure that next week's budget, uh, that their stamp would be on it in relation to housing. But you said last week that you wouldn't vote in favour of a motion because you were going to negotiate through the budget and bring about change that way. This week you're saying the complete opposite. Well, for a start, Michael, I said nothing last week other than uh, that we do have a housing crisis in this country. Did you, you vote? call it an emergency, Did you can call it what you like. The issue here is that the motion certainly has brought an increased focus on it, but not something that I have been avoiding since I went into Dáil Éireann. Look at, Michael, we have debates across the floor. We had uh, 73 days where no government was formed. Fianna Fáil gave that confidence and supply in the interim, and I think it's the most important point needs to be made here, uh, a housing report, cross-party housing support at that time when government was formed, including all of the people who are shouting and roaring off the off the off the rooftops yeah. to they need to provide housing, signed up to a John Curran report. Housing is slow to deliver. It's a case of supply and a lack of supply. I've been hammering that for a long, long time, and affordability. We have people out there 
not just people... You support who, this government. Now, hold on a second. Yeah. This is Fianna Fáil who go to the top of the hill and wriggle all the way back down. This is the Huff and Puff party. This is the Tut Tut party. This is the party that changes its mind uh, because it's now become the populist party. Well, Michael, you mustn't be reading many of the reports and, and the debates in relation to housing and what Fianna Fáil have done to it within the parameters and the financial parameters in the confidence supply agreement. Uh, we have made major impact in relation to government policy since we got elected. So you take responsibility for the crisis then, is it? Uh, oh, look, at, I think we all have to take responsibility for the crisis and particularly in my own party in that we were party to the boom and bust, but... The Fianna Fáil commitment, we, we, we in the confidence of play agreement in the first instance got the minute it got a specific minister for housing, planning and local development. You might say that's not important. Uh, we put a social housing target of 45,000 units every year and that has been part of her, the whole issue of rebuilding Ireland's plan. Why didn't you say last week that you'd support this motion? I, I, you didn't ask me. But Fianna Fáil. I, I, I mean, the, uh, uh, there was a, a clear impression that Fianna Fáil would not support this motion. Absolutely not. My parliamentary party meeting met uh, last Tuesday, and prior to that, the sentiments that are being expressed in the motion today are, are we're all at idem within the House in relation to it. We, there, you know, you, we can talk about what we need to talk about. What? what should be done. So, so, so done what do you now. mean as idem with it? Uh, do you mean that Fianna Fáil will insist that the capital budget on housing will be doubled in next week's budget? Uh, that's, part, that's part of the plan, but of course we can't second guess uh, uh, Minister Donoghue in relation to the parameters that he's tied to within of an 800 million uh, uh, so you, so, so, of which half... So the answer is no. Wages. So the answer is no. You won't insist. Well, look at... Uh, Michael, you can say what you like, but if you give me the opportunity to say what I believe should be in next week's No, I'm not asking you. Do you know what I believe should be in next week's budget? Some measure that will bring peace to the world. It's not going to happen. So what I believe should be in the budget or what you believe should be in the budget is irrelevant. What what, What people want to hear is what will be in the budget and will Fianna Fáil insist that the capital budget on housing will double? Yes. Uh, or or that, what? That, that is part of the negotiations that both Barry Cowan and, and Michael McGrath... So that's a red line issue, is it? I, I, I would... Look, at the conference of play issue is over after this budget and Fianna Fáil will make a decision then in relation to whether we continue to support this government in terms of issues around Brexit. But I, you've asked me on this morning to speak about housing. You won't let me say what I believe needs to be in next week's budget. And if you would... Give me that time. I, I, I believe that our stamp will be on it. I believe there will be an increase uh, in the funding uh, uh, at the insistence of Fianna Fáil and others. Mm. I, I firmly believe there would be uh, the launch of an affordable housing scheme. Um, uh, there was only £20 million allocated that scheme this year. It needs at least £200 million to make an impact and build homes that people that are affordable homes. We must remember it's not just people, and there are many people on social housing, and we have it in Loud, uh, many, many people seeking housing, many people in HAP who have a desire to have a house. But we also have a situation where there are many, many people who cannot afford, who are in, in, in what are considered good jobs, mm. can't afford to, to buy a house. And I believe a scheme that has been muted, uh, such as a, a, similar to an SSIA scheme, where the affordability can be brought down to a, a figure that those on 
who are working hard to try and own their own home. Do you believe they should dock a cruise ship at Dublin Port and uh, house 150 people on it? I don't. Uh, yeah, because they're talking about doing that, uh, aren't I've they? I've heard that and yeah. we, we've heard the, those dispatches. But what I do believe and firmly believe in, and I've said it all along, uh, Michael, we need we need houses obviously built in centres of population, but we have vacant houses. You've heard me hammer this for mm. years. Uh, the, the government, unfortunately, has failed in its delivery. We have a, a repair and lease scheme that was introduced with a target of 800. Mm. None of those okay. achieved. NAMA properties and NAMA land not been brought back into use. You know, a target of 400 affordable homes, no delivery. Affordable rental, still no delivery. Mm. 10 million promised yep. and nothing happening. Mm. We could go on. And go oh, on. we could. And we could go on with the wish list and the list of criticisms forever and a day. Now, can we talk about what you're insisting on and what is a red line issue? Will you vote in favour of the budget if the capital budget for housing is not doubled? Uh, the use of the word doubling, I can't predict what will happen, but I believe it has to be substantially uh, increased. We, we all know that. And as So far, where's your red line? Uh, the red line is that uh, it should be substantially increased within the parameters that are available to the Minister. And you interrupted me when I said he's, he has 800 million, of which half will be gone in increased wages. We know the, the, the hole that health has created, and Fianna Fáil are equally as committed to making sure... But he's sure choosing to have 800 billion. He has as much as he wants. Uh, he, 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 he has to stay with... I mean, if, he, if, he, if he restored the VAT rate in the hospitality sector, for example, he'd have an extra half a billion. That would give him uh, 13, uh, 1.3 billion instead Absolutely. of 800 billion. Absolutely, and I do believe that uh, there will be... Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's, ma- there's many ways of skinning a cat. So that figure of 800 million is what he's choosing to, 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 to put uh, into the budget. Yeah, but there are many, many ways in which you can increase that supply that I spoke about. I've I've given an indication of how affordability affordability can be reached. We have a huge problem in this country in relation to uh, abysmal apprenticeship numbers. Mm. He needs to take action on that in the budget. Okay, but you're willing, you, you, you don't have a red line. You're willing to see what parameters the minister decides to set because that's... Uh, an open-ended thing uh, and he's setting it at 800 million you're accepting that uh, and then you're saying well if he can give a little bit over to housing well so long as it's as much as as is possible within that very stringent parameter uh, we'll accept it the reality is that every person in Dáil Éireann, the 158, have to have some form of collective responsibility the, in relation to making sure we don't go back. What's the point in voting in favour of this motion today? Uh, well, you could ask that question, show me a motion and tell me uh, what can be achieved by it. I think... Well, the, I mean, No, you asked the question, let yeah, me answer it. I yeah. do think the, the, the one thing that can be achieved out of this is you know, that the Dáil collectively are saying to the overrad yeah. car... Housing, homelessness, and indeed health must be forefront in next Tuesday's budget. Yep. And, and, and that's specifically for Fianna Fáil. But you're saying... I know, Michael, let me finish. It, specifically for Fianna Fáil is saying, and you spoke to me on this programme earlier... Uh, but you're waffling. You, you're, no, you're, you're, you're waffling. You're waffling. You're, you're, waffling. you're going to go into the House today and vote in favour of doubling the capital budget uh, 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 on housing. Uh, and then you're going to go to Fianna Fáil and say, or to Fine Gael and say, will you do that, please? Uh, 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 OK, sure, if you can't do it, you can't do it. Uh, 
collective responsibility centres around obviously making sure that we don't go back to the bad old days. I have said to you, and you've accused me of waffling, but you won't let me finish what I want to say, so I'm going to finish it, Michael. Uh, What I am saying here is very, very clearly what I said to you three weeks ago in your programme, we would not be entering into any further confidence play arrangement until the budget was out of the way. We have laid down the marker through... uh, our two spokespeople who are, who are dealing with Pascal Dunhu, that this budget must create a further momentum into the delivery of housing. I am a realistic, I'm a realist, and you are as well, Michael. There is a delivery time on these things. You cannot build houses overnight. Fianna Fáil, for example, uh, you asked me what we want to do. We want to see local authority given more power to deliver houses. It's taken up to 59 weeks even to get approval from the department to go ahead with a scheme. We need to put the resources back into local authority. And, and by the way, for your listeners, whoever was best at building houses, only Fianna Fáil. When, when Fianna Fáil were in power, we built five houses uh, mm. Five to one houses of local authority. Who, who stopped building social housing? We we also. Who we stopped also building social housing? Two to one on affordable housing. Who stopped building social uh, social housing? Uh, well, there, Fianna it, Fáil. We, we moved to a hap situation, but let's. I know it was Fianna Fáil that stopped building social housing. Well, we we were also the accused have also been part of of uh, the building circle. So I don't know how Michael you can social that housing one. because but, social housing is different to the people who were in the Galway tent. Look, we have homeless at an unprecedented level. We have surging rents. We have house building that tens of thousands behind what's required. We have 130,000 people on the housing waiting list. And I said earlier, ordinary, decent people cannot afford their own house. Okay. We have got to start delivering. We've got to stop the spin. We've had six separate plans and 12 launches and various things by, 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 by this current government, which we are in a conference supply arrangement. Okay. Conference supply will be based on next week's delivery of both supply and affordability. In okay, and we'll see and how we it pans out next week, as you say. Yeah, and yeah. we'll come back and talk but about we won't that. But we won't okay. be thanked, Michael, if we don't provide some stability in the context of Brexit and indeed many other issues okay. in the worldwide economy. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for, jo- for, for joining us this morning. It's much appreciated. Thank Thanks, you indeed. Michael. That's Finnafall TD for Louth, Declan Brannock. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you live in South Louth or East Mead and your water comes from the Staline line or if you're on the Drum Conrath public water supplier to get a letter from Irish Water about the quality of your water. Mark McCauley, Asset Planning Manager with Irish Water, joins us now. And people might be confused, Mark. Perhaps you could explain it to us because you try to people to tell them that uh, their water is on a list of at-risk water supplies but at the same time you're saying the water is still safe to drink. That's right. Uh, we're writing out to over 140,000 homes nationally in 55 water supplies uh, two of which are in the Meath and Louth area as you mentioned Staline and Drumcondra they're affecting uh, uh, 72,000 people. Um, what we're advising people is the water is safe to drink. Um, the uh, information we're providing gives information on the water quality over uh, in their water supply, where the water is coming from, and the measures that Irish Water is making uh, are taking to make sure that, that water continues to be safe to drink, um, that we can provide for growth in those areas in the future, um, and that it's always you know reliable service. Um, obviously, we've had the the bursts in the in Celine area and the last couple of bursts in the, in the last year. Um, so it's setting out the measures we're taking to make sure that the, the water continues to be safe and reliable to drink. Um, 
within the information we're sending out, as I said, there's information on the water quality. So there have been uh, times when the water quality hasn't been as good as it could have been. Um, and again, we, what we're doing is we're setting out the measures that we're taking to address those. In Staline, we will have uh, a new water treatment plant commissioned to improve the water quality and the reliability by uh, 20, uh, the middle of next year, 2019. Um, and then the Condra supply will be taking an alternative connection to that from the RD supply, uh, which will be complete mid-2021. Uh, um, and as you're probably aware, we're also taking measures to ensure that the, the bursts that happened previously um, that those issues are resolved uh, by the end of this year. Um, so. And why is the water supply at risk? Yeah, so the the river water uh, or the water supply in, from Celine is coming from the River Boyne. Um, the treatment process up there, um, I guess by modern day standards, wouldn't meet Irish water standards and needs to be upgraded to include uh, a kind of higher level of treatment uh, than previously would have been the, the standard. Um, so as a result. Uh, what we can get is in the, the fringes of the network, you can have uh, things called THMs uh, forming. And this is a byproduct of our disinfection. So our primary purpose is to make sure that no microbes, no bacteria, things like that, that really affect public health, get through. So we disinfect the water. And when you do that, you can create these THMs. And they're created because twigs and leaves are in the water supply, mixing with the chlorine and the higher level of chlorine that you're putting in because of other problems, and that creates these THMs, is it? Exactly, exactly. So right, does the, that mean that the water is possibly carcinogenic? So the, on the water supplies that we've, we're writing out to customers on, we always consult with the HSE and the EPA, and we've extensively consulted with them on the THMs in all of our water supplies. Um, so the advice from the HSE um, is that the water is safe to drink and that you know, Irish water is taking the right measures to uh, eliminate any, any further risk. But does it mean that the water is possibly carcinogenic? It doesn't mean the water is carcinogenic. Uh, what it means is that there are uh, an elevated level, a higher level than we would like to have. Um, but THMs the- are classified as possibly carcinogenic, aren't they? There's been papers produced on a uh, possible link, um, but there's no conclusive evidence. And the World Health Organization on this is absolutely uh, clear that the primary function of water utilities like ourselves is that we must disinfect the water to uh, reduce the immediate impacts to health, such as, you know... Um, and the jury is yeah. very much out on this, but if it's to cause cancer, if the water coming of our taps is to cause cancer, it, it may take up to 35 years. I think the link is clearer in animals, sir, where uh, it's been established that THMs can cause cancer in animals. Uh, but there's also a link to certain types of cancer in humans, isn't there, like bladder cancer and colon cancer? I'm, I, I'm not a health expert, and as I said, we take our advice from the HSE on this. Uh, the levels that are set in the drinking water regulations are clear for us, and the clear guidance from the WHO and the HSE is that disinfection is absolutely the, the primary focus for Irish water, mm. and that we must minimise at the same time these THMs, um, which is exactly what, by the middle of 2019, this new plant for the uh, Staline area and surrounding areas. Okay, but there, there there are concerns about things like miscarriage and low birth weight. And uh, again, like that, I think the jury is out. We don't want to sensationalise this or worry people no, unnecessarily. No, absolutely. But, and but that's what I mean, we are it, saying. But it does uh, beg know, the question, doesn't it? Uh, doesn't it beg the question uh, about the level of chlorine and if the chlorine should be put in the water at all uh, and at that level if it needs to be put in? Yes, yeah, so one of the features of the, the new plants that we're putting in with the, this higher level of treatment is that 
um, because it removes more of the organics, is actually uh, we can optimize the the process to limit the amount of chemicals that we have to use, like chlorine. Um, so really, that's where the you know this kind of next step we're taking is is to minimize the amount of chemical use. Um, where possible and optimize the treatment process, which isn't possible with the, the existing plant. What I would say on the health aspect of the THMs is the information we're sending out to households. You're absolutely right. We want to, we don't uh, alarm anybody. And that's why we're sending out the advice. It provides links to the EPA's website and the HSE websites. So if you go to our own water.ie website, you can type in your address, find out the water quality in your neighborhood. Uh, find out all the uh, frequently asked questions in relation to that water quality and it also points to the HSE advice in relation to THMs and the the health um, aspects of that. Um, I think that's the best place for anybody who has any uh, concerns or lives in the area and and wants to investigate and understand their water supply. That's the best place for them to go to hse.ie. Okay, thank you, Mark, for joining us this morning. Mark McCauley, Acid Planning Manager with Irish Water. Now, the Public Health Alcohol Bill 2015. Yes, 2015 passed through the Dáil last night, some three years after it being introduced, uh, described as groundbreaking legislation by the Minister for Health, Simon Harris. And we're joined now by Eunan McKinney, Head of Advocacy and Communications with Alcohol Action Ireland, which has been campaigning in support of this legislation over the course of the past three years. Yunan, uh, I think this is a, a victory for you and others who've supported uh, the measures that are contained in this new law. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good day, Michael, and uh, I think that um, you know, this morning that we can see after a very long and contentious battle um, that we were finally making some really good progress on, on what is a very important piece of legislation that will endeavour to protect uh, public health over the long term and, you know, hopefully reduce our consumption of alcohol and hopefully lessen the alcohol-related harms that we see across society. Okay, assuming it's passed by the Shannon, which is pretty much a foregone conclusion, and uh, assuming that there are no legal challenges, uh, which is another day's work, uh, what will change as a result of this legislation? Well, I think the most immediate thing that people will probably see is we would hope that the minimum unit pricing uh, regime will be put in place maybe at some point, maybe by mid-next year. Uh, it will take some time for that to bed in and it will take some time to inform the various stakeholders of what's involved. But and I mean, mean you, what I, we're going to see there is... You know, that will mean what? The che- cheapest bottle of wine will be eight eight fifty. the cheapest can of beer will be about €2, Euro, is that right? Well, a little less. I mean, the cheapest can of the cheapest can of beer will probably be about one fifty-eight or there thereabouts. Um, uh, that's a half liter can. Um, a cheapest bottle of wine probably somewhere around seven twenty, seven forty, depending on the the alcohol content in it. Okay, and that's um, if you find it, because it won't be as easy to come across alcohol as is the case today because of the segregation. Well, unfortunately, we, we you know we had to we had to take a, a hit in relation to some of the measures we would have preferred to have seen in the separa- separation of alcohol in stores, and uh, unfortunately, you will be able to continue to see them, uh, in, in albeit in a controlled environment and mm. a much better regime than what we currently have, and that's really important because what we've had today really has been a self-regulatory voluntary scheme that's been operated by retailers and that clearly isn't satisfactory and hasn't been satisfactory so that thankfully will will come to an end and we will see a much better more coherent display of alcohol in those stores. Segregated more so than today but not to the extent that you would have liked with curtains and shops and that sort of thing. There'll be restrictions on advertising as well. There will 
there will be certainly a significant change in advertising in so much as that the way that advertising that alcohol is advertised at the moment is very much built on the on the building of, of brand relationships with particular audiences and especially to young people and that that endeavour will come to an end because essentially what advertising of alcohol in the future will be will be highly informative and utilitarian in other words it'll talk about the product it's 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 uh, production it's taste it's price all those sort of uh, utility kind of functions off the product, but it won't it won't seek to demonstrate the product in any way that demonstrates social success, or sporting success, or any of these sort of emotional uh, plays in relation to how we approach alcohol at the moment. And if there are ads on the telly or the radio, for that matter, hopefully the children will be tucked up in bed because of a, a water shed after nine o'clock. Yeah, uh, and, and again, that's going to take that, that'll take a year to put in place because there's a there's a lead in time afforded to the alcohol advertisers uh, in relation to the changes that need to be made. And then anybody who comes a, a across alcohol, uh, whether they're intending to consume it themselves or not, they'll see the warnings because it'll be labelled that it causes cancer. Yeah, well, there's six criteria that will be put on labels. Uh, there'll be three warnings, one of which is... Uh, the general warning for your health, a general warning in relation to pregnancy and general warning in relation to the the related risk between alcohol and cancers. And there also would be calorie information and the alcohol grams in the product. Um, so these these are going to be significant changes. But again, there's a three-year lead-in period for the producers to you know, extinguish existing stocks and to establish new labels, and that will take some time for to the consumer to see. But uh, the minister, again, there was a slight uh, weakening of that. That had been a two-year period. Now it's a three-year period, so it's been extended to a little bit longer. But again, all these things take time. It's incremental, um, and indeed, you know, it's worth reflecting mm. that the bill itself. You know, there's been a lot of contention about this and a lot of scaremongering in relation to that the world is going to stop because, we, you know, we would no longer be able to have alcohol. Essentially, this bill is quite modest. It's endeavouring to make uh, a significant, uh, 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 an attempt to reduce alcohol consumption by 3% per annum. And I think in that context, you know, we have to let this bed in. We have to let see how this works, how many of the measures that are placed, how effective they really will, will be. We think they'll be very effective but you know we need to evaluate that and then subsequently move on from there so this is you know this is a generational shift that we're talking about here and, and you may very well be right Eulen but I, I'm sure you'll accept that it will be decided by the courts ultimately as to whether you are right or wrong um, well, I, well I, I think that you know the many of the measures have been put into into many other countries across Europe and specifically in measures in relation to advertising they exist mm. already in member state countries so I don't anticipate No and I'm not arguing the merits I'm just saying that it's yeah. inevitable that it'll go to the courts isn't it Well well that's a matter for for I presume opponents of of the measures um in that context and I suppose you know maybe the maybe the alcohol industry will endeavor to litigate in that respect and but mm. I think the measures that are proposed are extremely robust and I think they'll withstand any particular legal challenge. Okay, well time will tell. Passed by the doll last night, uh, an historic vote and it really took a, a lifetime to get there. It certainly did. Alright, listen, thank you indeed as always thank for you. joining us. Uh, that's Eunan okay. McKinney, Head of Advocacy and Communications with Alcohol Action Ireland. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Times is reporting uh, this morning uh, that the Irish government expects the British government to table new proposals on Brexit and we're joined by Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South Down. I suppose it's inevitable that in order to save political skin, Northern Ireland uh, will be the scapegoat and be annexed from the United Kingdom. Well, absolutely not, Michael. Um, As you know, our 10 votes at Westminster are absolutely essential and therefore we'll be using every piece of influence we have to stop the border effectively being drawn down the middle of the Irish Sea. That's simply not acceptable, both constitutionally and economically, and there's a very difficult battle ahead, and we're determined to win it. Well, it seems as though there's a clear impression here that Mrs May, uh, the Dancing Queen, is willing to compromise. Well, we will be asking, our party will be asking for advance sight of any agreement and we're asking to be consulted upon it. And can I make it absolutely clear, Michael, we will not be supporting anything that diminishes the constitutional status of Northern Ireland or makes it difficult for our industrialists to trade with our biggest market, which of course is the rest of the UK. It's simply not going to happen. We're going to oppose it, and if needs be, we're going to vote against it at Westminster. And does that mean uh, that this is the reason why you've been aligning yourself with Boris Johnson? I don't think aligning ourselves with Boris Johnson. We will work with whoever the Conservative Party may choose as a leader in the future. We're not going to exclude anyone. At the minute, it's Theresa May. We're working closely with her. Do you trust her? Well, we do actually welcome her very strong pro-union stance recently. Uh, With all politics, you have to be careful. You have to watch and see the bona fides of those who are working with. But so far, we have been happy with how she's made it very clear that she's not prepared to break up the United Kingdom Mm. any more than the DUP. But do you trust her? I I, I think trust the wrong word there, Michael. In politics, you you don't end up trusting too many people. You have to go by their actions. It's a very specific word, and I think it's essential. I'd have thought it was essential in a a partnership such as the one that you have, which gives confidence and supply to Mrs May's administration. Well, that's what it is. It's not a trust partnership. It's a partnership based on those two principles. And so far... We, we have supported the government through thick and thin on those issues. Indeed, I think there's been something like 24 votes in Brexit and something like 17 of them would not have got through without the 10 DUP votes at Westminster. So she can certainly trust us, I can guarantee that. OK, I just would have thought that it would be very di- difficult to, to have confidence without trust. I think in politics you have to deal with people no matter where they're coming from and you have to go by their actions and what they actually say and do uh, rather than any perception you may have. But certainly we've worked well with Theresa May so far. I think it's quite a good relationship between Arlene Foster and Theresa May. I think that gives us a degree of confidence. I think the speculation is uh, that they're going to say that there's already checks in place uh, on the movement of animals, let's say, on on this island uh, and checks don't make a border. And we have a few more checks like that. Uh, and uh, that will sort of uh, appease the unionists and uh, give us the uh, means of making a, a deal with Europe. I think, Michael, it's a wee bit more than having the odd inspection of a cow uh, or any other livestock. What we're dealing with here is that Northern Ireland would remain within the customs union, that we would remain under the control of the European Court of Justice. Well, Ireland would. Be... Ireland would. No, 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 sorry, Northern Ireland. Totally no, Ireland, North and South. 
Yes, but we were two, talking about two totally different entities here. No, I know so that, but but, but 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 in this context, you could just say Ireland because you'd be very different than yes. the United Kingdom. You, yes, you'd, you'd be a member of the European know. Union in the same way the Republic of Ireland would be. So just to make it easy to come off the tongue, it's far quicker and more sensible <laughs> to say Ireland, isn't it, rather than Michael, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. It wastes an awful lot of time when you're talking about the same thing. Michael, you're making my point for me. That's exactly our problem. We do want assimilation between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. Ah, but it's inevitable now, is it? I mean, this is the first step uh, on the road to a united Ireland. I, well, exactly, Michael, you're making the second point for me. We see this as indeed an undermining of the constitutional position of Northern mm. Ireland. We don't want assimilation. We don't want to be simply regarded as Ireland. We are as much part of the United Kingdom as the Thumberland of Anna White, mm. and we do not wish to be treated differently either in terms of our constitution. But it's not possible because England, Scotland and Wales are going to leave uh, the European Union, uh, and that means that you're not going to be able to make your own laws or... Uh, to live under their laws, you're going to have to live under European laws uh, uh, and uh, be answerable to the European Court of Justice and so on as a, a member of the European Union, uh, as is the case with Dublin. So why not come under Dublin laws? Well, exactly, Michael. And that's this creeping undermining of our constitutional position, which ultimately could lead to discussion of a United Ireland. We don't want that. The majority of people in Northern Ireland do not want to be assimilated with the Irish Republic. We want to remain British. And therefore, as you made the point so forcefully for me, you should join the DUP. You've been excellent so far. You are basically saying, accept this, and this is a creeping assimilation into an Ireland Republic. We don't want that. We want to remain part of the United Kingdom. And you've quite rightly perceived that this is a step in the direction of United Ireland and we do not want that at all. But it's the prospect that we're looking at this morning. Does that not worry you that and this is possibly what Mrs May's administration is contemplating? And, and, and that is why we're watching the situation like the proverbial... That's why you country. don't trust her. And that is why we've said yesterday, Arling Foster said, that this is a blood-red line in the sand. This is something which we as unionists are not prepared to step over. And that's the whole basis, the whole ethos of being unionist, is that we are wanting to remain British and part of the United Kingdom. No more than you'd be happy, for instance, that that Ireland west of the the Shannon would be put into a different constitutional situation to the rest of Ireland. Of course you wouldn't. Therefore, the integrity of the United Kingdom is absolutely paramount here. And if we're not a unionist party that can protect the union, then why we're in business? Say that again. Oh, it, it, if we're not a unionist yeah. party that can actually protect the union, then we should go out of business because we, that is our primary raison d'etre. That's why we have to exist. That's why we're all in politics. It's so that I am not going on to the Mike Reid show from one part of the Irish Republic to another that I'm ringing you from the United Kingdom. Okay, but you are... Uh, it seems to me concerned that that might be the case uh, in a few years from now. Absolutely, and that's why we are going to use our 10 votes at Westminster to prevent anything like that happening. We want Northern Ireland to leave European Union on exactly the same basis as the rest of the United Kingdom. Nothing more, nothing less. Hmm. Uh, And uh, if that means a second referendum, uh, would you prefer that than to be annexed? Well, first of all, that's not the way. We're not like the Irish Republic, Mike. We don't do the best out of three. Uh, a decision was made very clearly by 17 million people to leave the European Union. We don't do second referenda in Northern Ireland. Well, when you we, see uh, Theresa May dancing on stage yesterday, you might think she's mad, but she's not stupid, and she's not going to allow the United Kingdom to crash out of the European Union, is she? Well, no, she, well, after she did the dancing routine yesterday, she made it very clear 
that she was not going to accept any deal which reduced the integrity of the United Kingdom. And well done. We agree with her on that entirely. So therefore, she's not going to accept a situation where we remain within the custom union and all the bureaucracy of Europe, while the rest of the United Kingdom enjoys the freedom of Brexit. That's not going to happen. And I think that's a very clear and consistent message she was giving yesterday to all those listening. The report on the front page of the Irish Times today says there is a belief that Mrs May is preparing to make concessions which will arouse opposition among Brexiteers and in the DUP, according to four senior sources involved in the process in Dublin? Well, we have asked to be consulted in any of those proposals. We will make our views known, but we're not bluffing, Mike. If this comes to a vote and we're going to destroy the union or undermine the union, we will be voting against it. And of course, you know the arithmetic at Westminster. Without our votes, it'd be very difficult to get any agreement through. But also understand that behind the scenes, there's a lot of toing and froing, and it may be that a deal will be done that will keep both the DUP and the Conservative Party happy. Um, it's a mm. difficult process. No and when you talk, when, when uh, Arlene Foster talks uh, about it being a, a blood red line issue, does that mean uh, that there's a threat to the peace? process? No, no, I don't think so whatsoever. No, this is about a constitutional position. This is about delivering the will of the British people, and this is about protecting the union, which the majority of people of Northern Ireland what, still... A blood-red uh, line, I mean... Was that just I, an I unfortunate turn of phrase? No, 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 no. I, I don't think you'll find any DUP supporter remotely worried about what you said. What she's indicating is this is absolutely vital. As Arlene said yesterday, this is the reason why she's in politics. It's the reason why I'm in politics. I'm in County Antrim this morning, and I want County Antrim to remain as British as Finchley okay, and well, not be aligned to Donegal or whatever. I, I mean, blood red uh, raises certain connotations. Uh, if it's interpreted to mean a threat to the peace process, uh, what would no. you think? Is that just a, a, an unfortunate turn of phrase or an unfortunate No, no, it, 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 it's Arling saying just how important this issue is to the unionist community. It's not a threat to anyone. The peace process... Uh, how how important is it, though? Is, is it so important that people are willing to shed blood? No, look, Mike, the, you know, there's a bit of hyperbole here. It's not a matter of blood on the streets or any form of uh, protests or, or violence. This is just an absolutely crucial issue as far as the union's community is concerned, in the same way that you would not tolerate any part of the Irish Republic being hived off either. Okay. I mean, it's our constitutional integrity we're dealing with here, and Arlene is absolutely right to indicate that this is a bottom line. It is a red line. It's a blood, blood red, red line. line we are not sh- okay. We're not shifting on this issue. We All right. can't. If we did, we'd be destroyed. I'm over time. I have to leave it there, but thank you as always for your time. Always good to talk to you. Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for Southdown. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning, Sue Marie. Good morning, Michael. A very busy morning on the phone lines. Uh, Matt phoned in straight off during your interview on housing with Declan Bernock, Deputy Declan Bernock at the top of the programme. And it's Matt's opinion that if the powers that be want to do anything about settling the housing crisis, firstly, the politicians must give themselves stop. Not not most, but stop give them give themselves rises, he's saying. No more pay rises for the politicians. Number two, they should bring in birth control. And number three, they should put a stop to the numbers being allowed into the country. Far too many coming in. We can't look after our own, says mm. Matt. What does he mean birth control? Stop. Put, 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 so that there's not uh, there's 
not children being born, I suppose, that okay. we're restricted in the numbers right. to because he feels that we can't cope Maybe with the population. Maybe adopt that Chinese model of allowing yeah, people to it. have just one male child or something like that. I think even the Chinese have put an end to that, but uh, Matt thinks that's an idea, is it? Well, that's there his three proposals. Right, okay. Okay, John in Meath wants to know if you're a blue shirt, Michael. I know you're wearing a kind of a bluey looking shirt today. If he, I'm a blue shirt. Yes, oh. because he feels that you were badgering uh, Deputy Bernock when he was on. Uh, why bring people on unless you're going to let them talk, says John in County Meath. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> John from mm. Drogheda on the subject of housing says I don't think there is anybody that has mentioned the amount of people who have come into the country which has put huge pressure on our housing stock don't think any government would have been able to keep up with the pace coming from where we were with the austerity and no money to build anything and that thousands of builders and tradespeople fled the country during that time because there was no work. No government could have been able to keep up with the pace. All right, well, that's uh, an argument. Uh, I suppose you could also argue that it's one of the richest countries in the world, uh, that there's plenty of money in the country, that uh, the governments uh, that have been in office in recent years have made certain decisions uh, in terms of distributing the wealth of the country. As we were saying, last year's budget gave everybody... uh, a fiver and nothing really to speak of in terms of housing and the year before uh, people on over 80,000 uh, got the equivalent of the cost of a holiday in Lanzarote in their pockets. Christy from Drogheda phoned in listening to your interview with Deputy Bernock. You gave him a right old grilling. It's a pity you didn't do the same when you to Fergus O'Dowd on during the week he says. And he also adds that you said it was a clear impression of Fianna Fáil's view of housing that they wouldn't vote in favour of the motion today. That's your view Mr Reid, says Christy from Drogheda. Okay. Lose another Fran. You can't beat people power, which will get much stronger as time goes by. Fran thinks that Fianna Fáil in the next election will join the Labour Party in the ratings. Fianna Fáil says PJ in a text are no longer a party with any substance. They are just the lapdogs of Fine Gael. Lots uh, of, lots, lots, sorry, John, uh, lots of money uh, housing uh, for housing. If politicians didn't take all. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. All the money for themselves, big wages and massive pensions. Sorry, that was a text. Mm. I was just making sure I was getting the gist of it. Joanne phoned in. Sorry, did you want to say something? No, I was just going to make the point that uh, it is one of the richest countries in the world and uh, there's many options. As Declan Branagh was saying uh, this morning, uh, the minister's parameters are such that he'll only have 800 million at his disposal next year. And as I said to him, well, that's the parameter the minister has decided because uh, there's many ways uh, a government can raise money. uh, And just uh, as one example, uh, they could... uh, 
decide to uh, to uh, restore the VAT rate for the hospitality sector and that would mm. immediately give them a half a billion euro but they'll be making all of these decisions indeed they've been looking at all of these areas in the last few weeks and on Tuesday we'll hear the budget for next week now the Children's Rights Alliance has outlined five priorities that they believe the government should look at in order to improve the lives of children in this country and Tanya Ward Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance is on the line good morning to you and thanks for joining us Uh, the first of the five priorities that you're highlighting is uh, to allow for parental leave that will be paid that's right. I suppose one of the, the big issues in Ireland at the moment is that the, uh, is that we have one of the lowest levels of parental leave uh, throughout Europe. Um, and what we know is that children do better, particularly in their first year of life when they're at home with one of their parents or one of their main caregivers. Um, and, you know, it's an investment for the future if you invest in parental leave, particularly in the first year of life. Um, you know, we, I, one of the things that I think we often think about, we think about the education and development of children. We think of it in terms of primary school and secondary school, but we don't think about the day that they're born and the importance of being with their mum or their dad or whoever the caregiver is in, in the family. Mm. So we're calling on the government to allocate £40 million to make sure that um, every parent who has a child can stay at home either through maternity leave or parental leave in the first year of life. Okay, and uh, for parents who have children in direct provision, you'd like uh, the allowance uh, to be increased? That's right. I mean, um, uh, to, to, to the credit of the government, you know, they we, we've had an allowance for children in direct provision of, of 960. These are asylum um, seekers, just to... Uh, these are asylum-seeking mm-hmm. children, yes, who've arrived in the country with their parents and they live in direct provision centres around the country. And unlike other children, um, they don't receive child benefits. So they're one of the only groups of children that doesn't receive child benefit. And for many years, they only received 960. And there was a slight increase uh, in relation to that. But we're really saying that these children should be treated like every other children. They still don't get their child benefits, so they should at the very least be able to increase their their, their weekly allowance. Uh, And we're calling for it to be be increased by €8 to to €80. And what that will mean for a lot of children, because we have talked to children in direct provision and we know... The, the scourge and the shame of the poverty that they're living in and what many of them will tell us is that you know they don't go to the local hurling club or mm. they don't go swimming mm. because their parents just don't have the money they don't have that five euros or the four euros to pay for them to participate in the basic things that other children are getting to participate in so a very small increase by government here would make a big difference to the many children who are living in direct provision around the country. To increase that allowance to the equivalent of what other children get, but you want that increased as well. So in effect, uh, you're suggesting that uh, children in direct provision should be given 36.80, as would be the case with all children. No, 31.80. So all children whose parents are in receipt of welfare payments get 31.80. Yes, but you want, I'm sorry, just if I go to another one of your priorities, you want that increased then to 36.80, do you not? No, no, to thirty-one eighty. So um, at the moment, it's twenty. It's twenty-one ten, and we want it to, all other children whose parents are receiving of welfare payments get thirty-one eighty, and we want children to provision to get the same, to have a, a, the same chance and a fair chance. Okay, uh, you uh, want a, an investment then in uh, the family law and children's court as well. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the scandals for us within our court system is that people accessing the court system, the district court system, you know. 
it's usually a very difficult point in their lives. Sometimes their marriage is breaking down. Sometimes a child has been taken into care. Sometimes there's chaos in, in a family life and the courts have to intervene. And what we would hear from families, from children, from lawyers who work within the system and from judges is that the court system is just it's ill-equipped. The buildings are ill-equipped at the moment for dealing with these very sensitive matters. So, I mean, I, I talked to a legal practitioner only two weeks ago who said she heard a mother cry and scream when their child was taken into care um, there was no private space for that to happen within the court building at all I've heard um, families tell me that you know they would be being told what's happened in the case by their lawyer and they can't hear it because they're in these corridors with hundreds of people moving through and they've no private space to find out actually what happened in relation to their case and we to be honest in Ireland we're behind the curve and lots of other countries the court system has been developed especially for families in these kinds of situations. Um, there is a plan at the moment to develop a family law and children's court complex in, in Dublin uh, 7 and Hammond Lane, but the money just hasn't been allocated to establish that court system. Um, and to be honest, it is a scandal and it's something that the government should start making the investment in. Okay, and uh, more money uh, that would go towards child care. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we're still in the position where we have the highest childcare costs in Europe. Um, Parents are uh, at the second mortgage for most parents. Um, My two children have just uh, are in school now. But I look back at the amount of money I paid in childcare costs, and I realised I paid seventy-two thousand euros over a five-year period to to our crash. And most parents are 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 are, are having to deal with that on, on a daily basis. And I suppose one of the reasons for that is that we just haven't invested in our childcare and education services for young children. Um, in other countries, they see it as a public good. It's like primary school. Mm. Every child gets to, gets to go and they get to develop within it. You know, it's the place where if you have a speech and language issue, that gets addressed. Um, mm. If you have any kind of additional need, that gets addressed. And then you arrive in school um, on an equal footing like every other child. So it's, it's one of those things where each government every year will have to make a significant investment to address this major issue. Um, well, every year, I think every government promises uh, to do something uh, in respect of it. And uh, I think the most uh, recent uh, turn of phrase was a Scandinavian style of childcare would be delivered uh, and we continue to wait for that. Uh, but let's yeah. finish with, with uh, the mm-hmm. fifth item uh, uh, on your list of five priorities, uh, the higher rate of qualified uh, child uh, increase for children over the age of 12. Perhaps this is uh, where my confusion uh, was. Sorry, but sorry about that. Yeah. Seekers, yes. So one of the things we know when we look at the child poverty rates in Ireland is that about 11, just over 11% of children are living what's in consistent poverty. And what that means is they might be going to bed hungry several times a week. Um, they mightn't have clothes to wear to go to school. They mightn't get to go to a birthday party. You know, it's one of the things that children uh, get to do. Um, uh, the, the heating mightn't be turned on during the winter mm. and and what we know is is that older teenagers are are teenagers from 12 to 17 years are more likely to be living in consistent poverty like that so we're saying to the government and we need to take account of that and parents need more support when children um 
uh, are in those ages. So at the moment, every child whose parent is in receipt of a welfare payment gets the 3180, apart from children in, in direct provision. So we're asking government, you know, to do something very targeted for those older children to try and deal with the shame and the brunt of poverty in Ireland. And to bring that up to 3680. That's right. Tanya, we leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we'll find out, obviously, next week uh, what Minister Donoghue has in store for the children and all of the people of Ireland uh, in uh, the coming year. And thank you indeed for joining us, Tanya Ward, Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance. Now, let's go back uh, to more of your comments. What else have you got from us? Yes, we had a tweet from Paul in relation to your interview with Deputy Bernock, and he says... Uh, at Fianna Fáil, what the amount of people outside the Dáil yesterday and are making their policy on that pure populist crap. How in the name of God do people still vote for them? Mm, well, it goes Fáil. back to the comment earlier on about uh, was it my impression or was it everybody's impression? I think there was a very clear impression from the motion because it was signed by all of the opposition parties bar Fianna Fáil that Fianna Fáil wasn't supporting it because they didn't put their name to it uh, and now they are going to vote in support of it. Pat from Navin says that he thinks we need more small homes for the elderly, then they can release the larger homes to families. Peter thinks that the granny grant could work as he says a lot of old age pensioners are living in big houses on their own and if there was money available to make alterations to their houses to convert them into two homes then he feels many may take up on that if the money was there for them to do it as some people feel that the houses are too big for them and they are harder to heat so he thinks it could address a couple of problems at the one time. So that's his thoughts. And finally, if I can go, we had John rang in in relation to your interview with Jim Wells and says, you have that man on who was talking about a United Kingdom. Uh, If he wants to stay under a United Kingdom, why doesn't he move over there? He's talking there and he's not listening. When Michael mentioned a united Ireland, we will always be Ireland, no matter what they do about it or what they call themselves. Well, let's hope it's not a a blood red issue. All right, uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. And uh, thanks uh, for that, Marie, and everybody who's been in touch with us. If you'd like to make contact with us, indeed, if you'd like to comment on the programme, you can ring us on 1850 715 958. To cabinet, and he spoke to all of the ministers, including Regina Doherty, about this. And he expects now that the project will go ahead as planned, overgrounding the high voltage cables. Uh, we had asked uh, Minister Doherty to join us uh, this morning. The minister is not uh, available, but we are joined uh, by Padito Bean, Sinn Fein TD for Meath West. Uh, it would appear, listening to Dennis Nocton this morning, uh, that this is the end game. Yeah, well, it's 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 clear that the government are abdicating responsibility uh, from this process. They've actually come in and said now that they have no further role in this process whatsoever, um, which begs the question, why do they carry out this feasibility study 
uh, and cost study if they had no role in it. Um, and also it begs the question, why did they intervene in Grid West and um, the pylon uh, that was planned for the, the southeast of the country? Well, they intervened, intervened in this particular project because of uh, a doll motion uh, which was sponsored by Fianna Fáil but had the support of Sinn Féin and all of the other parties, uh, I think. Uh, then they ignored the thrust of, of that motion uh, and came up with this stuff. Uh, at the time, everybody knew what the outcome would be uh, and that the purpose of it was to make the case for overgrounding the lines. And that's exactly what's happened. So there's really no surprise in any of that. Yeah, it's, you're in the, I suppose, uh, the interviewing game for a long period of time. And I suppose one of the tricks of the trade that you'll um, see in politicians is when you ask them a question, that they give you the answer to a question that you didn't actually ask. And that's actually what's happened here on a grand scale. So in other words, the, the people of Meath and the other four counties and the Dáil democratically decided that they wanted a, a feasibility study to work out the cost of uh, undergrounding as opposed to overgrounding uh, these lines. And what the government did is they, they ignored that question and morphed the question into a question of how much does it cost to compensate people for actually erecting uh, 409 pylons, 51 metres high, uh, throughout the, the, those areas there. And, you know, nobody wants compensation. Mm. Nobody asked the question well, of which compensation was going to cost. Okay, but they did the look at the cost of the project, did report they? which, which uh, focused on compensation. Mm. But they, they, they did look at the cost of the project. They, they're saying that it would cost $450 million more to go uh, underground, uh, which is uh, a three-to-one ratio. It's $286 million that they're planning to invest at the moment. To go underground would be $450 million more. But see, again, this particular costing exercise that they did was, um, was, was very weak because the cost of overgrounding the lines has three different components. The first component is the construction, for sure. The second component is the devaluation of uh, family homes, farms, businesses, and you know tourism and enterprise mm. along the area. They ignored that. Well, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't measure it. Because of the terms of this, I mean, this was a desktop study. Uh, and what you're talking about is, realistically speaking, perception. Now, when. No, because if no, they're, no, they're, but if I could just make the point, because perception is reality. Uh, I mean, if you perceive something to be awful, well, then it is awful. If you don't want to leave, live beside something because you perceive it to be awful, well, then you're not going to live there. Well, first of all, there are international studies uh, available with regards to the uh, reduction in. Uh, the prices of uh, homes and businesses when you build this type of uh, infrastructure next to their homes. So they they could have identified exactly what Mm. would be the the typical fall in the value of properties around the country if they did this. The onboard Planola report itself said that there were 600 properties along the cartilage of um, the the pylons, the north side interconnector, which would be materially affected with regards to their construction. And they could have worked out the average cost and the devaluation of this. Mm. The third component that they didn't cost in this is the delays of this particular project. Now, this pro- project is in its 11th year. Mm. And, and like Airgrid themselves have said that there's a 30 million euro cost for each year delay on this. And now they're saying that this is not going to be built uh, until 2023, which is another five years uh, delay, which is 150 million euros cost. So... They didn't identify the true cost of the overhead lines whatsoever. Mm. And the bananas thing in all of this is we have a government minister in Regina Doherty who is a who is part of a government who is 
you know, uh, paying money for state agencies to go hell for leather for this particular project, and who herself has stated on, on national um, uh, television mm. that she doesn't believe that this is actually going to be built, that she believes that she supports civil disobedience against this project. Now, if you're talking about a waste of money, having a, a government minister being involved in paying for this process while saying this process is not going to happen, that's a serious waste of money. The minister issued a statement uh, yesterday or the day before, I can't remember, saying uh, that work uh, should stop on the project now because of these reports. Uh, that seems to be very much at odds with the view of Dennis Nocton and the Cabinet. Uh, they seem to believe uh, that this is going to go ahead as planned, overground. Uh, do you think that uh, we're going to see uh, the minister take on her cabinet colleagues or possibly resign from government? Um, I don't think so. I think that mm. uh, Regina Doherty is simply fulfilling a long uh, tradition of government ministers speaking from one side of their mouth when they're speaking to the constituents and then speaking on the other side of the mouth in the actual uh, cabinet. There is collective responsibility for decisions made by cabinet ministers and you cannot say you're ag- against it in, in, and you're going to uh, stop it happening in your local constituency and yet uh, be part of that collective decision uh, in, in the Cabinet. This is a very serious project here. This is 409 uh, pylons, 400,000 volts through Meath, Cavan, Monaghan, Armagh and Tyrone. Some of them will be at a distance of about 13 metres from people's homes. And there's significant fears with regards to this. The technology has moved on. In Europe, uh, lines such as the Aachen Liege project uh, have shown that this can be done underground. And indeed, when I went over with uh, uh, Matt Carty mm. uh, over to uh, Belgium, Belgium to discuss that yeah, project yeah, with yeah. them, they stated with us that community um, uh, permission was a key component in their decision in what type of technology to use in these particular projects. And you know, like, I honestly believe that this is, is, is not going to be built either. But the, 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 the truth of the matter is the governor are going, are, are going to continue to threaten and force local communities on this for years and years to come. You, you believe it won't be built? I, I actually think that the people of Mead are not going, and the people of the other counties are actually going to resist this. And then, you know, there's a key component of this that the government are missing. 97% of the landowners along the cartilage of this north-south interconnector have said that they're not going to let Airgrid or uh, Electric Ireland on their property to proceed with this. And the key danger of this is that this is going to escalate into a far more serious confrontation between landowners and the people of Meath and the government. Instead of working out a, a, a mechanism whereby we can achieve the objective, and we all support the objective of a north-south interconnector, but to do it with the permission and the uh, approval of the people along the, uh, the cartilage. You know, the fact that we had you know, former CEOs of Airgrid saying, when asked the question, would you live beside one of these pylons? And they said, no shows that this is a, a form of technology that's now historic with regards uh, uh, technological advancements and repulsive to most people who want to live uh, in the countryside, in, the, in counties such as County Mead. Mm. Uh, it may not be built because it would come under European re- energy regulations. Well, um, I'm, I'm not so sure about that particular point uh, myself. Um, I know that um, there, there are a number of different challenges to this um, and you know the biggest challenge I see to this and, and this was another piece of information that we found out when we went to Belgium when we looked at the, the, the projected figures for uh, 
the um, the grid in Belgium, they showed that there was going to be a fall in actual grid use in the future in Belgium. And I asked the question, you know, is it, is it the case that people are going to use less energy? And they said no. They said that actually that micro-generation was going to be a far bigger component of energy generation mm. in the future. <clears throat> and and micro-generation means that, you know, gen, uh, electricity will be created typically in the location that it will be used. No, I know, but we're building a, a power line in Europe in uh, the event of uh, no-deal Brexit. Uh, does it come under European regulations or, or not? And that will undoubtedly beg questions, will it not? I think it has to beg questions because mm. um, there's all of the, um, the, the, the agreements between Britain and the European Union with regards mm. energy, the single energy market that exists on the, the island of Ireland, uh, and the, the, the planning regulations, etc., are all up in the air at the moment. And it's likely that there's going to be <clears throat> deviation between mm. the objectives of uh, Britain and Europe uh, in this space into the future. And, and even, ju- you know, the, mm-hmm. the likes of uh, the DUP have called into question some of these okay. projects. I'm over time at this stage. I just want to uh, refer to that statement I mentioned earlier on that Regina Doherty issued uh, this week. I have it in front of me now and it says, I believe it is now time to press the pause button and the Minister is calling on ESB networks to stop any further expenditure of taxpayers' money on this project while so much uncertainty exists. Uh, I'm not sure what uncertainty there is outside of the resistance that we're hearing from landowners and the community. See, if, if Regina meant business in this, and there comes a time in the uh, political career of individuals uh, where they have to follow through with, with, with regards to what they believe in, that they have to use the leverage of their particular seat and their influence within the parties and the government that they're involved in to achieve the objectives that are needed for the people that they represent. And I would call on Regina to you know, put her money where her mouth is, to actually say that her um, ability to participate in government is determined on the facts that this government is uh, proceeding with this. OK, and, as I said, the Minister is not available to us today. I know it's a very important issue to the Minister, as it is to so many people, including yourself, of course, uh, and hopefully she'll be available to us uh, tomorrow to uh, outline whether she'll take that position or not, uh, as the case may be. Uh, and if she's not available to us tomorrow, obviously, uh, our door is open. We hope to hear from her in the coming days or weeks, as the case may be. we we'll leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Sinn Féin TD for Mead West. Peter Toby. Michael Reed on LMFM. It is Road Safety Week and uh, Tony Kelly, who is a paramedic with uh, the National Ambulance Service, joins us in support of uh, the LMFM Road Safety Campaign. Good morning to you, Tony, and thanks for joining us. I suppose the objective of any road safety campaign is to highlight how in the in a split second uh, a bad decision or a bit of uh, lack of judgment can result in life-ending consequences but not always in life-ending consequences quite often what we don't hear about are life-changing consequences Good morning Michael uh, Yeah, from us from a paramedic point of view you know we, we would attend a lot of road traffic collisions some we could get there and people are actually you know no injuries but there's others we get there and you could have maybe two young people dead and one seriously injured. Uh, Two people that are dead, you know, their families, the rest of their lives are going to have to suffer. Uh, The person that's seriously injured, we as professionals would have to treat her to to the best of our ability. 
But it's after the after effect of this person, she could end up with a spinal injury from the road traffic collision. And it's it's a lifelong injury that this lady would have. Uh, so it's it's I don't think people realise that, you know, people that are involved in these road traffic and, and that survive, the injuries, they don't just heal overnight. Uh, it goes on for years and years. And it's a lot to do with speed. Uh, and just not paying due care and attention on the road. Mm. It's an awful lot to do with speed. Uh, I mean, whether people are drinking and driving or wearing a seatbelt or on a mobile phone, the speed you're going at uh, will determine uh, the extent of the injury, won't it? Yes. Naturally, if you're you're travelling at 140 kilometres and you hit something at 140 you know, a lot of time we'd arrive at the scene and there's two cars and they're absolutely... I suppose the only way to describe it would be if you had a Coke can uh, and you squeeze it, you know, mm-hmm. the way how they crumple up. Uh, and that's what you arrive to. Uh, and we'd be depending on the fire service uh, to, to actually have to cut these people out of the cars uh, and for our safety at the scene. Uh, like most road traffic collisions, when we pull up to them, the first thing we have to think of is the scene safe mm. for us we'd have to park our vehicle in a in a safe area, fending us up, off, uh, and we'd rely on the fire brigade then as well to make the scene safe for us. Uh, because the engine could explode, I take it. Well, the car could go afire, yeah. uh, plus you have, don't forget all these new cars of all airbags. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? We, we have a device in Octopus we will put on the steering wheel just to prevent that from going off. If it did go off, it catches it, that it doesn't do injury to us. Uh, and as you said it's not just speed it is drink driving mm. uh, like there's many a time we'd be at a scene of a collision uh, and you'd hear a bang uh, and you'd look around and it's people on the opposite side of the road actually looking over I think the word they call is rubbernecking mm. and next minute we're dealing with another road traffic collision on the opposite side of the road because they're not paying due care and attention uh, and really we're all road users and I know it's elderly week this week as well mm. It's not just road traffic collisions we're dealing with. We're dealing with people being knocked down by cars. And like elderly week for the Road Safety Authority this week, you you have an elderly person maybe crossing the road uh, at traffic lights. If you're driving up to the traffic lights, you're going to see that they're green. If you see someone standing at them, well, you're going to know, well, there's every chance they're going to go amber and red. And you'll see some of them, and they just sort of accelerate to beat that. But really, they should be slowing down and giving that elderly person more time just to get across the road. There's a, a lot of pressure on the road as well. Uh, people who are trying to uh, stay within the speed limit find it difficult uh, because of people coming up behind them and that sort of thing. And you spoke uh, about hitting somebody at uh, 140 kilometres an hour. I don't think you stand a, a chance no. uh, if you're hit by a vehicle at that sort of speed. But if you're trying to drive at 50 kilometres an hour, uh, well despite your best efforts there is a, a chance that you'll hit somebody and they say that if you hit somebody at 50 kilometres an hour there's a 50-50 chance that that person will survive or die or die uh, but or it, left with seriously injured injuries but if you increase your speed to 60 kilometres an hour mm-hmm. uh, which uh, uh, there's very little difference in it uh, then the chance drops to just 10% of them surviving yep. you know <laughs> You know, over the years I've been at road traffic, and most of these road traffic collisions, I'm talking about cars, uh, young people in them, they're in local communities, they're in a local area. Uh, you could arrive at the scene, uh, we'd have our APs there, one seriously injured and one dead. 
we would treat them very professionally, get them to the casualty. When we would be outside the casualty, probably our job is done and we're outside the casualty and we're looking at these mother and father arriving up into the casualty in, in to, see, in to go into the hospital. One family, you, can, you know they're told their son is dead and the other family has been told their daughter's here. And like, it's the grief that the family has to go through. And like, I also had to point out young drivers, there's an awful lot of very good young drivers out there, but statistics show young drivers, you know what I mean, mm. do, are at, at a lot of cause for these road traffic collisions. Uh, but I don't think they understand the consequences. Uh, and like, as I said, 60 kilometres, some of these motorways are travelling at 140, they lose mm. control of the car, they hit the barrier. It's like a squashed up coke can, we're going to. You know what I mean? The Road Safety Authority can ask, slow down, they put on shows. Uh, plus, the other thing I have to say on road traffic collisions, you do get people stopping uh, and, and going over to assist, which is grand. But people should really have a high-vis jacket uh, in the boot of their car if they are going to stop and get out because they could be a casualty as well themselves. Yeah. Well, God, the, the thoughts of that. Uh, but uh, when you talk uh, about speed, I think it's probably true as well to say that a lot of us don't really realise how fast we're travelling at when we're inside a motor car. We were talking earlier in the week about uh, people out walking uh, on dark mornings or dark evenings and not realising that they couldn't be seen by cars yeah. because they can see the cars quite easily. Uh, and uh, that's the perception from inside the car and outside the car and the difference between the two. And I, I think the same follow uh, when it comes to the speed when you're walking or standing on the pavement uh, you realise how fast a, a car is going but it doesn't feel like that when you're inside the car when you're in, well you know yourself I, I don't know what kind of car but most people have reasonably good cars and you could be sitting and you look down at the clock and you don't even realise you're up to 70 uh, but you take as you said 60 on a, on a country road uh, husband and wife out for a walk in the evening this car comes around at 70 he's but he's looking at his mobile phone, not paying attention, and he, he doesn't see them, right? High-vis is so important to have people on. And even with the high-vis, you, be, I'd be out walking, and even with a high-vis, you might hear a car coming. You're inclined to step in because a lot of the people in the cars, it's like they own the road. Like, there's so many road users on the road between bicycles, pedestrians, we have the dark mornings coming in now as well with mm. the children going to school. Uh, do you know what I mean? They, mm. they should all have high vis and any school area you were coming up to, they should be right down to minimum speed. I should mention as well, Tony, that the HSE asked you to speak to us as somebody who has frontline experience in dealing with the consequences of these road traffic accidents. And uh, it's very clear speaking to you that you've a, a lot of experience from small bumps uh, to the worst of circumstances uh, where people have lost their lives. How do you cope with that yourself? Well, if, if, if we get a call for a road traffic collision uh, and, and it would be maybe three people involved, we arrive, we do a, a quick triage, scene safe first, park safe, quick triage, uh, and we look for the most serious uh, what resources we need? Do we need a fire brigade? Do we need a guardie? Most of the time they're en route anyway. Uh, our job professionally, we doesn't, doesn't affect us in any way when we're dealing with the patients. 
we'd have APs there, they'd set up IV lines to get fluids into the patients. That's advanced paramedics. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, IV, uh, pain relief, stabilise the patient, and our aim is to get that patient stabilised and get them to the emergency department, right? Uh, how we deal with it, it's, it's what I was talking about earlier, when we see parents arriving in and we know they're going to be told, it's when we get back to the base, then that maybe, you know, we, the HSA do provide systems. We have a lot of uh, paramedics, advanced paramedics trains in counselling, and we, they're on the end of the phone all the time. Uh, and then, you know, it, it's a mechanism you sort of build up. Naturally, if you come into the job, you're coming into the job to care for people, right? So professionally, you do your job, and it's afterwards then. Some people might speak to a counsellor. Others don't need to, but it's there for us. Or we would speak to ourselves. And if the counsellor was speaking to a member of staff, maybe it's a young person, a young member of staff that hasn't got a whole lot of experience, they might move them on up the line uh, to one of the senior counsellors. Uh, you know, mm. we're all human. Uh, we have family, we have children. Of and we're going out to deal with children. But that's the profession we have taken on. And the reason we've done that, because we want to care for people. Because these things do happen in life. They mm. could happen any one of us even whether we're paramedics, advanced paramedics, can happen to any of our family. We don't want it to happen, but we're witnessing this every day. And I'm sure and people will appreciate that because you are there and uh, the work you do, there are people who are alive today and uh, people's lives have been turned around for the better because of the quick uh, and uh, very professional intervention uh, that the Ambulance Service yeah. gives to people. And I have to say, it, uh, the National Ambulance Service has improved. I'm in it 42 years and the changes I've seen, it's all for the better, the better of the patients and the better of the staff. Uh, plus, I have to say, at the road traffic, we also work as a team. The fire service actually are a great help to us when we get out there. Uh, they're concerned about our safety, but they're also concerned then for the patient safety because you can see, you've seen cars, I take it, that's had to be cut up. Uh, so it's a team effort with ourselves, the fire service, and the Garda Con. They all have to witness what we witness. Uh, so it's really a team effort but really you know I, I do think people should take take heed of what the road safety is doing what you are doing this week is is tremendous there should be more of it uh, you know we're not just going to road traffic collisions on, on a motorway we're dealing with maybe a child knocked down outside a school in the mornings we're dealing with an elderly person being knocked down in the evening maybe because a car was travelling too fast uh, bicycles uh it's, it, the road has gone so busy, but people don't seem to have time. They seem to be in a rush all the time. And saying that, back to the young people again, there's some very good drivers out there, but the unfortunate thing, there's also some very bad ones. Uh, and I think they're the ones that need to be educated. We'll leave it there. Tony, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Tony Kelly is a paramedic with uh, the National Ambulance Service. He's speaking to us as part of LMFM's Road Safety Week. 
A group of more than 20 organisations who represent uh, people in need of care or people who provide home care have come together in advance of next week's budget uh, to call for a €100 million investment in home care. One of uh, the groups involved in this is Alone. Sean Moynihan is its chief executive and he joins us now. And you say this would result in a situation where thousands of people wouldn't be forced to, to stay in hospitals or in residential care, for that matter. Absolutely. Good morning. Good morning. I think, uh, uh, appreciate the opportunity this morning. I suppose, I, I, I suppose what the first thing is, the wonderful thing is 21 organisations all putting out the same press release, all asking the government to do the same thing. Of older people, or people with ill health or disability across all age groups to actually help them age and live in the community where people want to be. Mm. Uh, and they do want to be the research shows this absolutely and I think everybody knows we've been talking about you know trolley crisis delayed discharges for 10 or 15 years and some of the answer the main infrastructure that is having care and support in the community which we've been hearing about for a long number of years and I suppose we as a group are working with government departments but also in pre-budget to say this is the type of uplift we need, this is the type of money we need to actually make some of that a reality so we can meet the needs of our people. And when you talk about the trolleys, uh, you talk about people being on trolleys because there aren't hospital beds because of what has become known as bed blockers. But God forbid the day that any of us end up being a, a bed blocker, nobody wants to be in that situation because you are talking about people who have been clinically discharged from hospital but continue to be there and it's a horrible place to be. Nobody wants that. Uh, that either there isn't a nursing home place available for them or, or there aren't the supports for them to go home. Absolutely. And, and we all know that it's much more expensive to keep somebody in hospital than to keep them at home. And on, on the days where we get those big trolley numbers and we say there's 500 people on trolleys, you usually find there's five, 600 people waiting to be discharged, but there's no support to bring them home. And you hear and, of situations where... A lot of money is being invested. Uh, perhaps uh, they've uh, qualified for one of these grants and a, a toilet or a shower has been put mm. in downstairs uh, and the house has become accessible for them to come home, but there isn't the home care. There isn't the, the support available from uh, the HSE. Absolutely. And I think what, what, what it is, the power of 21 different organisations, what the thing is, is we have all these stories, the experience on the grounds, the families the older people, the, the, the communities that are struggling with this. And, and the reality is, is we're trying to create a right to home care. Because currently at the moment, is if you are being discharged and a clinician, a qualified doctor, says you need 21 hours of home care, you might get three hours or two hours and then either the pressure on the family, the community, or the individual can't go home because the scheme, you have no right to it. And ultimately, is when, once the money's gone, the money's gone, and so you get delays. Whereas the reality of it is, is we we need a right to that. So if a clinician says that you need 21 hours, you should get the 21 hours so you can live at home and go home from hospital and live in your community. And then in some ways, the state also is starting to build in re- resilience in the community, and it's cheaper. And we're on a promise, aren't we? Uh, I mean, a scheme is promised by 2021. Those dates tend to be pushed out over time. But even if uh, a home care scheme is delivered uh, on time, that's a, a very long time for some of the people we're talking about to have to wait. 
Absolutely. And and there's people on the group and we, we, we and organizations on the group like ourselves who've been campaigning on this for, for ten plus years. And we believe in the bona fides that a scheme will come, but I think we have to stay united, work to make sure it's a scheme that benefits all all, all, all people, whether older, younger, disabilities, and make sure that the slippage doesn't happen. So while at the same time it's cooperating, trying to get the system to build its resources, we also need to keep the pressure on, we also need to stay united and take opportunities like this that people understand the issues and that we also make sure that we keep some political pressure on to, to, that, that this is a priority of spending. Okay, I have to leave it there, Sean. Thanks for joining us as always. Sean Moynihan is uh, the Chief Executive of Alone and brings our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out on us once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Before we go, thanks to Marie Kearns for producing and Maggie McGuire for researching. Chris Murray is in the control tower. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.